today on Golazzo, the extraordinary story of Vittorio Cecchigori, Oscar-winning film producer Fiorentina Padron, who himself ended up in the can. We relive the Calcio, the Campione, the Nine Keys of Cocaine and ask, was there something darker behind his downfall or just his own dumb decisions? Plus, Inter's derby win, Euro Cup draws and gold twins. As Mancho prepares his new Italy, is Gianluca Vialli heading back to their old hunting ground, Samp? Michelangelo, Dante, Vittorio Cecchigori, and the cultural pantheon of the Renaissance city, Florence. These names figure so very, very large. Gabriele Marcotti and James Horncastle with me today. Just a, a few strains there of La Vita Bella, It's a Beautiful Life, the Oscar-winning film produced by Vittorio Cecchigori. Or his wife, Rita Rusic. Of whom more later. Yeah. The extraordinary figure of Vittorio Cecchigori, who comes up as a subject today of Golazzo because he's kind of, I guess, an archetype of that strain of Italian club owner that, that figured so very heavily in the 80s and 90s and, and now has been basically just driven out of the game. Are you by... sure? Massimo Ferrero? Oh, yeah, that's a good shout. But is he really in that ballpark? I mean, he, yeah. the Tanzis, the Cragnottis, the Cecchigoris? I mean, he's the closest uh, Ferrero in that regard. But yeah, Cecchigori has everything. Cecchigori even has things that differentiate him from Cellino, Zamperini. In many ways, he's more of a kind of, I don't want to call him a pound shop Berlusconi, but he's very much on those lines. You've got well, the. Yeah, I mean, he wanted to emulate Berlusconi. I mean, you could say, I wouldn't say he's a poor man's Berlusconi. Actually, no, he is, in that he went into politics, um, he bought TV stations, um, launched satellite networks, and ultimately um, had some of the same tastes, maybe, as well. I hear what you're saying. <laughs> Cab? Yeah, I put it this way when the when the gates to Hades open up um I'm, maybe there will be place for both of them, but I think Chicky Gaudi's place will be much grimmer. And yet as he's not funny and likable, don't it's just even the making sure fun it's of not him Hades, it's it's going down to a certain ring of hell, it being Florence. Oh yeah, yeah. Dante, I like that. Yeah. But from a Fiorentina point of view, can we not make the case and we probably will today, that he actually brought the club some of their most extraordinary years. But this, is the, this is the thing with all these guys. They, they burn so bright, don't they? Mm. Um, because uh, you could make the same case with Cragnotti, for example, with Lazio, that um, they had their most sustained, glorious period under his management. Um, even to a, to a lesser extent, because they didn't win anything, major at least, Cellino and, and Zamperini. Um, you know, they brought in spectacular players, they were in the top flight for long periods of time. And, you know, under Cecchi Gori, for example, they win the Coppa Italia twice. First silverware in, I think, 21 years. Mm-hmm. Highest finish since Antonioni, uh, sort of beginning of the early 80s. So in- Also two relegations and, and <laughs> bankruptcy and <laughs> collapse of the club. I, I, I think there's a few things. So people wonder where does this guy come from, right? Some of these legendary presidents, and like, like owners everywhere, are self-made. Um, Zamparini, I think, was was very much, you know, self-made. Others, like Cellino, you know, was largely inherited, certainly got a big boost, as no doubt did did Berlusconi. But again, Berlusconi 
went and multiplied the fortune. Cragnotti, I can say this, right? I'm not libeling him, is basically a con man and a fraudster, or certainly a court found that he was multiple times. Vittorio Cecchigori is a different animal altogether. His dad, Mario Cecchigori, was a successful producer in Italy, although just how successful remains to be seen, but he grew up very wealthy. Mm-hmm. Did you know he played for Fiorentina's uh, youth team, Mario Cecchigori? Yeah, just like Silvio Berlusconi played for Milan's youth team. Oh, really? Berlusconi <laughs> was a lot better. And then, because he grows up with with money and power, and but people say he's Mario Cecchigori's kid, and also he's in the world of cinema and film production and whatever else, he decides to go and take enormous gambles. What's interesting was Fiorentina, for all their ups and downs, Fiorentina obviously went bankrupt, but one of the main reasons why Fiorentina went bankrupt is that all his stupid other businesses that he thought he could get into, mm. when he believed he was something other than just you know, the idiot spoiled daddy's boy, he borrowed so much money that he had to put Fiorentina up as, as collateral. Well, Fiorentina as a club was actually properly run right. and, you know, came as close to balancing the books as clubs did in those days. And also, indeed, much like the Cragnossi thing, Cecchi Gori was found guilty of siphoning money out of Fiorentina yeah. into his other failing businesses. Yeah, I mean, Mario Cecchi Gori got into the film business because he, he was a driver for, for some of the best directors in the golden age of Italian cinema. And then obviously he spent time around them, worked his way up, and then started producing all these sort of famous comedy films, if you like. But he was very much aware that his son was a complete idiot uh, in that he said, Il mio crucio, okay, il, mio fil- il mio figlio è un bischero. Yeah, <laughs> so the cross that I bear, said, bischero, bischero. the cross that I bear is that my son is a, how you can translate that? Moron, idiot, <laughs> right? <laughs> Probably worse than that. Yeah. He was saying it with affection, and he wanted to keep his son as far away from the kind of decision making. Well, Mario Cecchigori bought the club from the Pontellos in 1990, and his means of keeping Junior at bay was making him vice president, with ill-fated consequences for the club because the 92-93 season, first one we were covering on on Channel Four, they started brilliantly under Gigi Radici, and indeed were second in the table at Christmas. There'd been some incredible results. They'd had a 7-1 win over Ancona. They'd been beaten at the Frankie 7-3 by Milan in an unbelievable game. But they were second in the table at Christmas. A couple of days after that, 3rd of January, they lose 1-0 at home to Atalanta. And then all hell breaks loose, Gab. Yeah, so he goes down and he goes to see Gigi Radice, who, just just for context, Gigi Radice was a very innovative manager in the 70s. By that point, he was he was an older manager. Um, but still commanded a ton of respect because he was one of the first people to, to to play sort of zonal football in Italy and, you know, was generally considered to be, you know, one of the good guys, one of the generally respected, likable people. We thought of Cecchi Gotti, even then, was not. And uh, as it emerged, they lose 1-0 at home. He's humiliated in his city, you know, with uh, Brunelleschi's dome overlooking and crying uh, at the defeat. And he goes down into the dressing room and according to several accounts, um, perhaps he wasn't quite himself when he went down there. But moments later, Radice emerges to where the media is hanging around and says, hey, guess what? I'm no longer the Fiorentina manager. We've all been fired, me and my staff, and I'm not exactly sure why. Well, Cecchi Gori then goes on the wonderful Processo di Biscardi, Processo del Lunedì, the next day, this infamous shouting match of a show. Sono stressato. Vi vedete, i migliori film sono sempre i miei. Ve li andate a vedere. Mi devo occupare perché mio padre non sta bene anche del calcio. C'è una rogna in mano. 
voglio dare una gioia a mio padre, voglio dare è a Firenze che la Fiorentina vada bene. He says, I work hard, the best films are always mine, go and see them. My dad's not well, the football's making him unwell, I had to take this decision. And he, he basically says, and I had no choice. Because if we keep playing like that, we'll go down to the second division. Yeah, can you imagine? But luckily, he's got a brilliant replacement lined up. So his replacement is Aldo Agroppi, who... He's one of those guys who like become like a cult figure in Italy because he was a decent footballer. He's a good pundit. <laughs> he was a but kind of professional he was a, controversialist. A, yeah, I have no problem with contrarians, as you might have gathered, James. And Christopher Hitchens is one of my heroes. But you have to be able to go and articulate your contrarianism in an intelligent way. This guy just kind of became a cult hero just by going on television. And at a time when... And they still do this, but Italian pundits and the discourse was all very kind of technical speak and, and, and whatever. He just went out there and and just took up the opposite position. So, you know, Maradona is rubbish. There's nothing special about what Saki's doing. You know, if Marco Van Basten hadn't gotten injured, he he still wouldn't have scored and so on, right? Mm. And people so that's who Cechi Gori thinks. it up. Yeah, yeah. entirely logical. Presumably because yeah. Maurizio Mosca was busy or something? <laughs> Maurizio Mosca was a guy who, he appeared on the show all the time and um, his brother was a very famous and respected uh, journalist and writer. Um, he was not. He used to go on television and he had this shtick where he'd like, he'd pull out the, what they call the pendolino, which is... <laughs> basically like a little trinket on a on a chain and he'd swing it back and forth and he would speak to him and yeah this sounds more and more demented um he was sort of like the daniel hannon of his era right okay <laughs> anyway so with a groppy now in charge they go two months without a win eventually he goes they bring in uh, luca chirugi but it doesn't matter because it's been such a disastrous decision to remove the respective Radicci and hand the keys to a, a TV pundit that a team containing Brian Laudro, Stefan Effenberg, Francesco Toldo... Gabriel Battistuta. I was coming to him, yeah, <laughs> and Gabriel Battistuta that was challenging for the title at Christmas gets relegated. They win 6-2 on the final day, but it's too late. Mm. They are down in Serie B. They also had future tattooed cult hero Francesco Flacchi. They also had... Baiano. Uh, they also had Baggio, albeit his brother Eddie, who's <laughs> not, quite, not quite the same thing. Um, but no, it's completely, it's completely, completely absurd what happened. And a lot of it is down to Agrappi, who then would, would take over and... There's one of the players who's on that team, who I won't mention, but might be from a place called Reconquista, um, come out and he said that the thing about Agropi was that the same way he played a character on television, he played a character as a coach as well. And the players got together and after two games kind of realized, like, we'll just tune him out because all he does is abuse us and speak nonsense and so on. And let's go and play ourselves. But you can't do that because you need to have a coach. You need to have somebody who's in charge. You know, we had a lot of strong personalities. He didn't say this, but I think also what happened was one of those strong personalities was Stefan Effenberg, who, right. you know, slightly unhinged himself. And he says, yeah, we're going to do things this way and that way and stuff like that. And, and then all of a sudden he's, he finds himself in a, in a freaking zoo. And, and that didn't help matters either. Now, in defense of Vittorio Cecchigori, I mean, I don't want to play the controversialist here, but... You're being the contrarian. You're I being am. the Aldo Groppi. I, I mean, he keeps most of those players together for the campaign down in the, the second division and then, to an extent, learns his lessons in terms of 
managers when he comes back up. He appoints Claudio Ranieri, who has four full seasons they in top Florence. The second division, get promoted. They um, win the Coppa Italia. Mm. Yeah, the first of two. When they come up, I think it's what, 94? US World Cup. He's watching the Brazil team and he's like, I can't get Romario. I can't get Bebeto. I'm going to get Macho Santos. Um, and he, I think, puts a clause in his contract where he says, if you score seven goals, mm. Macho, I know you really like Basic Instinct with Sharon Stone. I'm going to introduce you to Sharon Stone and you can go for dinner with her. I'll pick up the tab. <laughs> How many goals did Marcio Santos score that season? He scored two, but two of the most incredible own goals that you will ever see, one including a header from outside the yeah, box. Magnificent. <laughs> uh, glorious. Anyway, all right. Well, so that didn't work out too well, but so many great players did come in. Under Cechi Guri's watch, I mean, you mentioned Batistuta, who Cechi Guri claims, and I have no reason to doubt him, was entirely his doing. He says that he was in a swimming pool in Beverly Hills doing some film business and uh, they were like Preziosi in Ibiza signing Piontek very similar <laughs> and he see there's some Copper America playing on TV and who's this long haired figure playing up front in the swimming pool because that's how Chicky Gotti rolls it's so. Beverly Hills you know <laughs> okay. LA right. so he sees this he sees this long haired uh, Argentine striker and falls in love and, and brings him to Fiorentina for I think only about 2 million sells him then for about 70 or something you know that, that might be Lira 17 million lira, lira yeah. yeah. But basically for a massive profit. And look at, I mean, Brian Ladder, Effenberg, fine, but also Kanchelskis, Edmundo, famously, Torricelli, Delivio, Mijatovic, Chiesa. Rui Costa. the greatest of I'm them coming, all. Thank I, you. I, thank you. Again, I was saving the best for you, Gab. Well, for, for James, I know you have, I know. I know that you go gooey over Manuel Rui Costa. Why, Gab? Because he's maybe the most technically gifted midfielder. I've ever seen. Nobody played with the effortlessness of Manuel Ricosta. Nobody. When you look at Messi and Cristiano, they may be better players. I don't doubt that. But they look like they're working really, really hard. But him, he, he floated. He put mm. the ball wherever he wanted. Ironically, for a man named Manuel, he didn't labor. You know. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, but anyway, but also, yeah. this yeah. is a great era of Fiorentina kits now. I mean, oh, that's true. You think of the seven up, also the swastika. Yeah, kit. let's not mention the swastika. Well, I mean, that was unfortunate. It, it, people are aware of it, and then you have got the Nintendo. They had some great sponsors. Great Nintendo great feel. Kits. I mean, that's the sort of thing that's coming back. They were fabulous seasons. First of all, under Ranieri, and then most especially the two campaigns under Giovanni Trapattoni, ninety-eight, ninety-nine, while the music of Prozac Pew Acida rang out across. Florentine transistor radios, Fiorentina La Viola, top of the table for 22 weeks in a row. Salta anche un piccione, Batistuta in area di rigore, il destro, Gabriel, Omar, Batistuta. Batistuta, rete, Batigol, stavamo parlando di lui e lui sblocca il rigore, il destro, Gabriel, Omar. But then it came to that dramatic stop. Gabriele Batistuta gets injured, as you mentioned, Trapattoni's driving off to the airport in a jeep or something, I can't remember, to try and stop Edgemunda for flying off to the carnival, where he's going to join Cechi Gori, <laughs> yeah. or, or whatever it was. And they end up third that year? Third, yes. Yeah. Still the best finish since the sort of early 80s. Um, but obviously, you know, huge disappointment and, and regret at what, what could have been. 
Um, I think already then there was talk of, of Batistuta um, leaving. Do you remember um, Cecchi Gori? He made a giant banner. <laughs> Batistuta incedibile. So he makes this giant banner saying Batistuta not for sale. Yeah. Can't be bought. And he hangs it underneath the kind of the VIP tribune bit mm. where he sits. It's extraordinary because you're used to ultras in the Curva preparing these banners. You never see it from an owner, but Cecchi Gori was not your average owner. Malasani, we should mention him, who came after... Oh, he came before, before Trap, Trap yeah. yeah. He didn't last very long. Malisani, I think, felt quite unlucky at Fiorentina and was a kind of... The fans were really behind him. I think this was the thing for Fiorentina as well. If you were coached there, you never really got blamed for anything that happened because all the blame was, was thrown at the owner, who was never really popular with the supporters. And um, Batistuta, when he moved to Roma and obviously... Fiorentina fell apart and went bankrupt, which we'll get into. He said, oh, now now the players are going to start to get criticised because that just hasn't happened for the last, you know, sort of 10, 15 years because all the kind of ire of the supporters has been directed solely at Cechi Grullo, Cechi <laughs> idiots. You mentioned uh, the, the, the TV stations and in... The mid-90s, and I think some people point to this as where Cechi Guri's problems started. He mounts this challenge, this attempt to launch a kind of third national TV force, taking on effectively the Italian state TV Rai and also media set owned by Silvio Berlusconi. Good luck with that. Yeah. He has an expensive divorce from his wife, Rita Ruzic, the actress and, yes, as you can hear, singer, whose voice you can hear in the background there. Gab, this is a song that's quite special to you, is that right? (laughs) <laughs> Sex without love. The song is called "Sex Without Love." Right. Together, and um, no, I I went to I went to a wedding in in Italy and, and friends and relatives, and it's up in the mountains, and people only really speak English, and they really like the song, and. Obviously, can really listen to the lyrics. They don't speak English. Not these people, no. Right. Or they either that, or they don't believe in ever listening to lyrics because it was actually the first song. You know, when 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 the newlyweds dance together, they they chose this song. Sex to without kick it love. Off. Yeah, I know. What it's, a it's, moment! It's quite funny how. Um, I mean, I've had experience where so I was sat in a bar in Rome, and there was a guy who had a, uh, a T-shirt on. He clearly did not know what was written on the T-shirt in English, which was "Go hard, big dick." <laughs> Um, anyway, back to Cechi Gori. Back to Cechi Gori. So he ends up in massive personal debt. And by 2001, Fiorentina are about $50 million in the red. His other businesses are all heading heading down the tubes as well. Uh, and he has to sell the film rights to so all of his films to Medusa, which is the, the film company owned by Silvio Berlusconi, which can't have been great for him. That's the thing. 2001, 2002, it all happens. He gets arrested. There are police raids on his Roman residence. The team ends up relegated and then bankrupt and then drops to the fourth tier of football, Chidui. The police raid, first of all, that was extraordinary. So you have a club owner. The Florentine police drive down to Rome to raid his residence there. Spectacular property on the banks of the Tiber. And this place... Palazzo Borghese is... Where the Pope used to live. Where the Pope used to live, I think, where the, the, the Spanish embassy still mm. still is. Um, it has an unusual trapezoidal ground plan. And its narrowest facade, the one you were referring to, James, faces the River Tiber. Okay. 
The entrance at the opposite end of the building, right. the keyboard of the Cembalo, faces onto the Fontanella di Borghese, with another in a great flanking facade to the Piazza Borghese that is extended by a slightly angled facade leading down via Borghese. <laughs> I wonder which one the police came in through that day <laughs> in 2001. But um, legend has it that they caught Vittorio Cecchigori and his, his wife at the time, uh, Valeria Marini. Well, did they ever get married? I don't think she was his wife. Okay, well... Um, his companion. Well, I, the I'm, showgirl, Valeria Marini. Well, he said sure. five or six years with her was like uh, being in Vietnam in the end. That, that was, was his nom. That, that was a hell of a thing to say. <laughs> yeah. She defended him so much. So basically, the police come in, they find them doing whatever, mm. and among the many other things they discover is a safe with inside it, supposedly, 10 kilos of cocaine. He says he never put it there. No, she she went on TV and said, no, somebody must have put it there. It was in a locked safe. Yeah, he thought it must have been saffron. And, you know, saffron per, per kilo is probably... Is it more expensive? It probably is more expensive. Probably more expensive. Yeah. I but of course, you, that's, where, that's why you would keep the saffron in, in, in the, the safe. safe. Yeah, in yeah. The safe. I, I should point out about yep. Valeria Marini, you can Google her. She's a pretty remarkable person because people kind of think of her as just like this, you know, showgirl, attracted to money and power, whatever. But as you just mentioned, James, she stayed with him and stuck with him when he was in prison, when it became obvious to everybody that when he came out, he would be, assuming he ever comes out, that he would end up as a pauper and that she actually had, by that stage, she had a lot more money than he did. So it always struck me as kind of weird, like, you know, this guy who's like 30 years older than she is. Mm. Looks a little bit like a fat Nigel Farage. <laughs> is that unfair? He's not a, a looker. Mm. Not as I handsome mean, as Farage. As for, for for what that's worth, but yeah, and that was just the start of his problems because in September then he he resigns as president. September they begin investigations for fraud over club finances. In November the players produce the first messo in mura where they they send letters of intent that they will dissolve their contracts if they're not paid. He sells the rights to his films then, as you mentioned to Berlusconi, to partly pay the players, but above all to pay the uh, the tax that he owes the Italian state. On the 11th of December of that season, he's charged with electoral fraud. He's essentially the accusation is that he's he paid um, football fans from the Acciriali club in, in, in Sicily, where he was standing to be elected as senator. Um, he didn't win. And then... This was another thing, his political career, because the guy... Never shown any interest in it. But at the time in Italy, electoral systems changed a little bit, to some degree still today, but you stand in a particular constituency, the uninominales it was called. And he decided to to run in Acireale, which is in Sicily. It's a, I, I don't think he'd ever been there. I don't think he even went there to, 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 to campaign. But the obvious reasons why he decided to run was that he would then have some level of parliamentary immunity. Right which I think people very, very quickly uh, caught on to. Didn't he run his Forza Italia as well? No, he no. was, or, or he was the other... Partito Popolare. Yeah, he was PPI. He'd previously been elected... Uh, he'd served two years as a senator in, in, uh, for some location in Tuscany, but this was a, a less successful campaign. James, I mean, he, he tries to basically keep Fiorentina together, keep it in the family business, essentially. He said, I'd rather see it disintegrate in my hands than right. someone else get hold of it. And luckily, none of the Italian banks, like Montepaschi di Siena, will, will lend him money, right. uh, which he kind of says, well, Siena are in, in the top flight, coming into the top flight now. It's, you know, all kind of Tuscan sort of politics here, campanalismo. And he produces this fax 
from a bank in uh, Bogota. Col- in Bogota. <laughs> In Colombia. So this is, by now, this is August. In the meantime, Mancini has resigned, who had become manager during all of this, and I think won the Coppa Italia in the midst of all of this chaos the previous season. That was one of the, what happened there, they didn't have any money left because he'd siphoned money for his other failing businesses. And they were in a situation where they had to just basically go and sell. Everybody was nailed down. People who were close to the club, who were fans and had helped it out, like this guy, Palavicino, who was Ricosta's agent, he negotiated his deal to Milan, and he could have very, very easily come out and just said, you know what, why don't we give another six months, and the club will be bankrupt, and you become a free agent, and, you know. Take loads of money. Take loads of money. But they got a huge fee mm-hmm. from Milan for him, and Rui Costa, who was so attached, or so viscerally attached to Florence, you know, famously, he starts crying um, at the time, the moment he says to, to, to sign the contract, and the agent starts crying too. So that's for a moment they leave the room. And he said, you know, it just feels so wrong. Why am I, why am I doing this? Why can't I stay in Florence? Why do I have to go to, to Milan? What do I do? Palavicino says, you know, as your agent, you need to take this deal. Mm. As a Fiorentina fan, I feel like spitting in your face because you're leaving us. <laughs> These guys who were Fiorentina fans who were selling the players for money, they thought that they were helping the club. Ultimately, they were simply throwing good money after bad because the vast sums that Milan paid ended up going straight to the creditors for his stupid other businesses. Anyway, Mancini, who has managed to achieve some success during all of this, January he goes. In March, Cecchigori's mother, the kind of historic Fiorentina fan, Valeria, Cecchigori dies. By April, the fans are marching in their tens of thousands against him. July comes the moment when the Covisoc, the kind of governing body, the financial regulators of Italian football have declared that Fiorentina can't, they've been relegated, but they can't make the regulations for for City of B, so they'll be essentially dissolved and have to start again from the fourth division. But Cecchi Guri's there saying, I will have the money from this Colombian bank in 24 hours. And the team are up training in Trentino with uh, Eugenio Fascetti, who's the new manager, mm-hmm. and when they just get the call and say, no, it's, it's over, Fiorentina is is done. It was spectacular and, and Fiorentino had to begin under a new name with, with some players like De Libio. And among those players was a, a 21-year-old Fabio Quagliarella, Cimbo. Really? Yeah. In that fourth division Fiorentia side, Florentia. Yeah. Mm, exactly. Well, they made their way back and Cecchi Gori is now regarded as the man who took one of the most popular and successful clubs in Italy and, and, and basically drove them into the ground. But we'll discuss in a second why there may be more to the sorry ending than all of that. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. So Cecchi Gori raises a couple of interesting questions now because he's he's not been well. He had a heart attack. He spent a couple of days, I think, in an induced coma, but it's now doing the rounds and also pre- preparing a very hefty lawsuit. He makes two interesting points about his downfall and Fiorentina's downfall. Some people suggest that he took on the wrong people politically and also in terms of his television ambitions, if you know what I mean. But it is curious how, of all the clubs that were in trouble financially in 2002, only one was required to pay their entire tax bill at once, and that was Fiorentina. Lazio, hello, by contrast, were given, what, 26 years or so to spread spread their debts. The second thing is pretty dramatic. So in August... 2002, the club is declared bankrupt and 
they lose all their assets, etc. They have to form a new company and, and start again in, in, in the fourth division. The guy who was the, the judge in charge of that, a judge in Florence called Sebastiano Puliga, years later, he himself is sentenced to six and a half years in prison for effectively being at the heart of a system whereby businesses would be identified and made bankrupt, and then he, in return, would receive a share of their assets. I mean, essentially, they were called um, bancarotta pilotata. They, they would drive companies under and then, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, scavenge or no, they get... Asset strip. Asset yeah. strip them, yeah. The Fiorentina case was one of the, one of the, I think, about 50 cases that were included in his trial. He was found not guilty of that one, but he was found guilty of a, a really tragic tale of a guy called Gianni Zanella who, who actually shot himself after being declared bankrupt and there was a scandal and they investigated and, and the guy went to prison. But it is curious how you know, Che Giorgi always, always wondered at the, the timing of that bankruptcy decision and, and, and the guy made it years later then goes to prison for effectively being bent. Having said that, Gab... <laughs> Having said all of that, if you're going to do something like that, you go after whatever the hell this guy Zanella made, ball bearings, because it's so much under the radar. You don't take a chance by going and driving an actual football club bankrupt. Right. And then when you talk about seizing the assets, what assets are you going to seize? A club's assets, I mean, this Fiorentina, you know, I think they might have owned a part of the training ground, but but that's it. They don't have any assets other than the players, right. all of whom become free agents. So, but don't tell Chucky Guri this. He's, he's got a lawsuit for 350 million euros. Yeah, because he's crazy. And by the way, we didn't mention this before, but one of the things, it's not going to work great on uh, because it's a photograph, but you can find it yourself on the internet. What he would do would go on the on the balaustra. Back when they, when they liked him, especially in the Ranieri era, the fans would, would shout at him, during the game saying like, you know, we want you to go on the balustrade, which basically is sort of this, this sort of supporting wall outside the box that he sat in. And he would go and he'd sort of waddle up there and stand up there in his suit. And he'd go and he'd like pump his arms and shout and shout at the referee and, and, and whatever. And, uh, you know, you can, you can just, just look at, he looks absolutely absolutely ridiculous and then this is a man of you know of 50 right you remember this yeah yeah i mean he would be sat in 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 the vip section with naomi campbell on one side and um who is the porn star who ran for uh rocco Sifredi? no the, the um, female one. The, oh, uh moana pozzi Ticciolina. Ticciolina. Uh, Staller, sorry. Yeah. One of the great banners in Italian football history was when, obviously, the fans were uh, going through one of their periods against Cecchi Gori, which was uh, Quella volta non ti potevi una sega, to Mario Cecchi Gori. Right. That time you couldn't even afford a hand job. <laughs> they could have just put sex without love. <laughs> Bring it all full circle. Well, there it is. The extraordinary story so far of Vittorio Cecchi Gori, who burned so brightly... And so very briefly, but not briefly enough for some, a gab. Anyway, we will, in a second or two, talk about things in the present day where, of course, such craziness doesn't go on in Syria. Syria, 2018-19, and a spectacular derby at the weekend at San Siro. James, you were there. Yeah, I think it was one of the best derbies I've ever been to. One of the best games of the season so far um, in Serie A. The game certainly lived up to the kind of pre-match choreography and everything that went on before, even though it was a, slightly controversial that Inter's Curvenor decided to dedicate their entire scenografia to um, the Varese Ultra, who was right. killed before the, the Napoli game. And uh, throughout the game, there were banners you know, saying... 
essentially tributes to him saying you know an ultra has left us dying for what he believed in and stuff like that um i can't really believe that the interior ministry allowed that to uh to go on but there you go um but from the get-go into with the better side in the first half there was no contest spalletti uh what played with vicino kind of just off um, Lautaro Martinez who had a fantastic wasn't game there. because Icardi wasn't there he wasn't even at the, at the stadium for, for, for the third home game in a row but he was very nearby yeah exactly he has a uh, penthouse overlooking San Siro right um, he could watch it from the hot tub on the rooftop nice. there um, but yeah Vecino um, they just couldn't pick him up uh, and that, Lautaro Martinez the understanding that he was able to strike up with Vecino not everything came off Obviously, the first goal where he very kind of selflessly nods it down for Vecino to not just tap it in, but smash it in. Mm. But just some of the things that they did. And then Milan's second half, they just threw everything at it and, and made for quite a nervy end. Where 3-2, it finishes. Piontek is completely shut down by Inter, who suddenly have a functioning defence against Skriniar and De Vrij. Just take well, yeah, it out. when Skriniar doesn't play in midfield. <laughs> but uh, I thought Milan, particularly first half, just the way they played, they'd lack balance because Suzo was completely peripheral. They never went down that side of the pitch. It's it's one of the it's it's, it's one of the issues with Milan, and like we praise Gattuso, and he deserves a lot of praise, and this is entirely his fault. But if you're going to say and build from the back, you need a creative player who can pass the ball. They got away because Bakayoko and Kessi are are wonderful, but they're not those types of players. Paqueta carried the can for a while, but. He's clearly not physically right right now, which is understandable. He moved from Brazil and blah, blah, blah. So I think the big decision was to whether to to play Lucas Bigley or not, who you know is about as, as mobile as this building, but can pass the ball. Instead, they didn't. Inter scored first, which forced Milan then to try to create something. Suzo was awful again, as, as James mentioned. And that allowed Inter to stay in front. I know... Spalletti gets all the praise and that's fine well done Spalletti I would have been very curious to see what would have happened though if, if Inter hadn't scored first mm. you know or if Milan had equalised in that final 10 minutes where they had well also in stoppage time they had two really good chances yeah. we have to talk about D'Ambrosio Danilo D'Ambrosio he yeah. is he, I mean so okay it, this is Patrick Cotroni shaping the shoe and Danilo D'Ambrosio comes out and throws his whole body in front of the shot to basically to, to, to block it with his legs splayed Yes. So also basically, not back, that is yeah. the thing that yeah. struck me, the hands behind the back. Because in this age of, you know, Joe X Pro going on television, not a handball for me, oh, you lost the games. In ten. It's a while no. since we've heard that voice. Yeah. No, Welcome but, back, old friend. Thank you. <laughs> Daniel Ambrosi is intelligent enough. He's nice and courageous to know that don't take a chance. And it's almost comical how he, he runs out there and he's got his hands just literally like tied behind him and saying like, I have no protection whatsoever. I may never be able to have kids again if Kutona smacks me. Which he largely does. That's more or less where he takes the hit. I, yeah. It's an extraordinary thing, as you say, to, to run out there, A, exposing yourself with your legs splayed like that, but B, with your hands behind your back. That's remarkable. But that's why he is a god among... No, but this is also why for all the... All the nonsense and all the garbage and taking sides. This incredible relationship that Inter have right now, the Inter supporters have with the team, mm. where you know they're still getting sixty thousand plus yeah. every game, 
is absolutely incredible. Well, a much-needed victory. They're second in a row, of course, putting them back above Milan. And the good news was the other top four contenders, only Lazio won, but that's who they're going to be facing after the international break. So that'll be a huge game. Juve also lost their first defeat in City out of the season to Cesare Brandelli's Genoa, who've now taken four points of six yeah, from the them. the first team, I think, five years to go undefeated against Juventus in the league wow. in a season. Um, and I lady saying, oh, this is a good time to lose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, really? Because you're 18 points clear. But, uh, and again, people say, oh, well, that's okay. All, all, all the emotional energy they spent beating Atletico Madrid. You know what? All that's fine. I would be more concerned. I look at this and I say, okay, Cáceres, Rugani, all these guys, Moise Ken came on, mm. somebody else I'm forgetting. Dybala was playing. You know, Bentancourt was back in the starting lineup, right. Dybala. How about you guys actually do something? Mm. It's not like you, what, what emotional energy did Rodrigo Bentancourt expend against Atletico Madrid? You're right. playing an awful team in Genoa. This is your chance to say, hey, why don't I create a problem for a leg and put myself back in contention? Right. But no, and he's so passive about it afterwards, like, oh, well, you know. Well, maybe he was in public, but not... In private, as you say, they are a bunch of points clear. Napoli did win, though they had a four-two victory over Udinese, featuring a return to the school sheet for Dries Mertens, which was excellent news. Just since uh, we mentioned Juve and Napoli, of course, those are the two Italian representatives remaining in Europe: Napoli in the Europa League and Juve very much in the Champions League. Juve will be taking on Ajax in the quarterfinals, while Napoli will visit Arsenal, the Emirates, yeah. in the Europa League. You can imagine what the coverage of Juventus Ajax, what kind of coverage is being prepared for that, the 96 uh, Champions League Champions final League in final. Rome, of already, course. Already former Ajax players, staff, coming out with their uh, suspicions about that game. Well, Juve's share price, romantically enough, leapt after the draw because this was seen as a, a good opponent for them. How, how convinced are you about their I mean, chances? It is a good opponent. I mean, after Porto, it's a second best opponent you could hope to face and max respect to how well they played against Real Madrid at the Bernabeu and, and all this stuff but you know they also did lose at home to Real Madrid and other than Porto yeah there's probably nobody else you would have rather have faced yeah perhaps I just I mean I remember watching that first leg against uh, Madrid and I was more impressed with them as a collective then mm. than when they played and won at the Bernabeu because I thought the Bernabeu they played really well don't get me wrong but they had more flashes of just individual brilliance in that game they absolutely floored Madrid in Amsterdam um, they were just very unlucky to lose that game so I think it's going to be a tricky tie for Juve Napoli meanwhile described by Ian Wright no less as the worst opponent that Arsenal could have drawn how do you view that? I think Ian Wright's probably correct I don't think Napoli doing backflips at the prospect of facing Arsenal either by the way you just have two very good teams with, with managers who have tremendous European pedigrees squaring up against each other. Mm. I think I would give the edge to Napoli because, rightly or wrongly, I'm a kind of a believer in the fact that the fewer games you play, then the better you play in those games. And Arsenal, of course, are are locked in a battle to finish uh, uh, top four in England, whereas Napoli can take their foot off the gas a little bit because they know that they're going to finish second. Also, Arsenal have lost the last two away games in the Europa League to Bati Borisov and Rennes. Oh, that's true. And they've had to come back in the second leg at the Emirates. I think this time around, it's the other way around. I think the first leg is in London, the second leg is mm. in Naples. But they will not be able to afford to put in the kind of performances that they have in, in Belarus and France against against Napoli at the San Paolo. Also, this weekend in Serie A, 
Sampdoria had a mighty 5-3 win over Sassuolo. Mm. Some spectacular goals here. Quagliarella once again. Is that a fifth game in a row he scored? He's, he started another run. Another another run at that uh, at that record, which right. he matched. Batistuta's record yeah. under the Cechi Gori years, Fiorentina. But they played some uh, great football in this game. Wonderful team goals. Second time this season that Sassuolo conceded five. Oof. They're not one in maybe six or seven games. They're putting some good performances against against Milan and Napoli in that time, but not got what they kind of deserved out of those games. I don't think they got what they deserved out of this game either, frankly. Mm. I, I don't... I'm, I know. I'm a big Dezabi guy, so... No, I, okay. I think that defensively they made some horrendous mistakes in this game. Sampdoria, though, that uh, victory followed by some pretty dramatic news. Uh, Wednesday's Gazzetta della Sport with a front-page splash and then a big spread inside on the idea that Sampdoria are about to be sold by owner Massimo Ferrero, the bescarved, showbiz-loving, gnomic figure who kind of frolics up in the, the Tribuna VIP. Sold by them to a fund called York Capital with, it says here, Gabriele Marcotti, Gianluca Vialli, former Samp legend. Gianluca Vialli returning as president. What can you tell us? From my understanding is that there's a guy trying to put together the deal who's an Italian guy living here in London. And the guy who owns York Capital Manager, the main investor, is a guy named Jamie Dynan, who is a part owner of the Milwaukee Bucks in the NBA and has been looking at different football clubs. And if all this comes to pass, then they may offer Gianluca Vialli the right. presidency and he may accept. But you know. Okay. A lot of water going to the bridge. Well, Federico's obviously excited to sell because, hey, look, he's got all sorts of legal problems too. Right, and apparently he's uh, he's intended to use the money to buy Palermo. Speaking of which, are these Samp buyers going to bring in David Platt as a consultant? Because he's also a Samp legend. Yes. And that it went so well last time. I know, I know. That's extraordinary, though, isn't it? With, uh, the Palermo story is one that we haven't been keeping you up to date with it, but you might have been following it. Gone very, very badly. The money never turned up. There was... Uh, I think, did the players actually get to the point of uh, putting the club on notice over their own unpaid wages? They did, but I think they were paid just in time right. for the, the team not to be deducted points. They're still in the automatic promotion places. But anyway, that Samp business with Gianluca Vialli, massive splash in the Gazetta. It's a real story. It's a real story that, <laughs> that Ferreira would love to sell the club. It's mm. a real story that, that these guys are looking to buy a football club in Europe, not necessarily in Italy. And it's a real story that the guy who's putting out the deal knows Gianluca Vialli, just as it's real that he used to be a Sampdoria legend. Whether all these things come together, and you know, I think remains to be seen. Expect at Marassi Samp's next home game, Tribuna d'Onore, Massimo Ferreira pulling out a banner, putting it over the balustrade, saying Samp Incedibile. (laughs) Incedibile. All right, excellent. (laughs) But of course, all this happening while Vialli's Urstwal, a gold twin... Roberto Mancini prepares Italy for Finland on Saturday with an exciting squad that features Samp legend Quagliarella, who's returned to the Azuri. And crucially, Verratti and Jorginho are both fit, can play in midfield, we hope. Anyway, we'll talk about that, how that game goes on Saturday in next week's Golazzo. Do let us know if there's a topic you would like us to address. But for now, it's many thanks to Gabriele Marcotti and James Horncastle. And from all of us here... 
Arrivederci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. <laughs>